0: Business School. Welcome, everybody. This is the Business School Podcast. My name is Daryl Pereira. I am Senior Brand and Content Strategist here at IBM and really excited today to have Karen Girotra. We're continuing our series looking at business and AI, and Karen has a very unique perspective which we'll dive into. But to kick things off, Karen, if I can ask you a quick intro, who you are, what you do today, how you got to where you are.
1: Thanks, Daryl, for having me on this uh, podcast. I'm a faculty member at Cornell Tech, which is Cornell University's new shiny campus in New York City, custom built, built from scratch to really study the implications of technology on business and society. Before that, I've been a business school professor for over 20 years. I was at the Wharton School. Then I was at a school in Europe called INSEAD. And then about 10 years back, I got a call from uh, Cornell University that they were trying to build something new. And it was an opportunity I couldn't say no to. So I started here as one of the founders of the founding faculty, one of the first faculty of this campus, which was also from a personal point of view in terms of my research work. I was always researching entrepreneurship. I'd been a small-time entrepreneur myself. Started two or three kind of companies as a co-founder, one of which at at a certain point did big. And then I'll only say one little thing about it. In December of 2006, I was rich on paper. In January of 2007, I was back to being poor. So I did that kind of uh, startup journey for a bit uh, in my my previous life. And then when the call from Cornell came in, which was um, continuing my academic work, but also getting the chance to build something new, and build something which is explicitly focused on what I think is the most important issue of our generation, the interaction between technology, business, and society. And that was an opportunity I couldn't say no to. It's been 10 years since we started Cornell Tech. We've grown quite a bit. We've raised probably over a billion and a half dollars in grants, funds, endowment. We have built a campus in New York City. And I think what has been the, we have over six, 700 students now. And I think the uh, Core of our, uh, first, we were good timing. If I told you 10 years back, I think the importance of technology and we've, we've become much more cognizant of how it's going to influence business, society over the last 10 years and last two, three years and last year or two with AI. Of course, these things have become important. We've had some wins behind our, win behind our back, but I think we've also constructed something quite unique, an educational institution which puts people with a business background like I was, with people who are, uh, I was an economist, so business economics background, with people who are, uh, who are actually developing some of the leading era uh, digital technologies, be it in the area of language, voice, uh, video, visuals, computer vision, natural language, what uh, Umbrella is being called AI these days. So a lot of that stuff is developed by colleagues right next to me, and I view all of that with an economics business perspective. So I think that's what got me here, and hopefully I think uh, with this podcast and others, we can bring some learnings from our uh, unique technology plus uh, economics business perspective to your audience.
0: That's fascinating. And, and when you say this business, economics, in terms of your own journey to get from economics and technology, especially, how do you see the two of those things into play?
1: To be honest, I don't think they were very episodic journeys. I was a uh, business person, then I became a technology person. Frankly, I think I was living all these lives all my life. So I started out as my undergraduate was engineering engineering where I did a fair bit of, uh, it was kind of mechanical electronics engineering, so I did a fair bit of robotics work at that time. And then at some point, I just was intrigued by, by math. And at that time, the applications there were finance. So I got into finance economics. So for a while, then in my PhD, in my grad school, my PhD was more economics. But in the end, it was still math. And at that point, I think we got a little bit away from technology. But I think when you're doing research in economics and others, you're still a very strong consumer of technology even if there are developers, so particularly digital technologies. And as an economist, I was doing a lot of data-based work. And then for a while, I applied the data-based work to studying the impact of technology on society. And then when, when I came to Cornell, in a way, what has happened with digital technologies, it's mostly based on data science. And so in a way, what was part of economics is, is part of data science. And all of these things come together. So I don't think it was too episodic. It was mostly an evolution. And if I had to give an advice to your uh, listeners who are probably a bit, bit younger than I am, it's basically I just took what was the most exciting opportunity at that time. There was no master plan. There was no plan to get anywhere. It was just uh, work hard on whatever you have in front of you and make the most of the opportunity that is the most exciting one right then and there. And I think I was, I can, perhaps I was a bit lucky that it all kind of works out. But I've seen this, um, I think it works out more often than we imagine when we are young. You do all these things and at some point exposed you realize, okay, this is all kind of fitting in a in a in a puzzle that kind of builds up. Because in a way, we write our puzzles. So I think you do all these things, your combination of all these identities and things you put together. And then whatever you are going to do at a certain stage is going to be a, a a good fit of that. Because you can't leave pieces of you elsewhere. So in the end, I think it all comes together uh, for most people.
0: That is a great message, what you're saying there. You know, sometimes you can get caught up so much in, oh, you know, well, that person's doing that. I should be like them. I should do this. What you're saying there in terms of find something that you love, that you're interested
1: in, follow that itch. Two caveats to that. So, number one, I am no stranger to being jealous and looking across the uh, what the other person is doing. Why is he doing better than that? I, I think I've gotten better with it, but that does consume me also. So, I cannot advise anyone to avoid that because I haven't figured it out myself. I think it's good advice, but but probably probably hard to act on. The second thing I will I will say is. I think too often we think, do what you're, uh, I wouldn't say what you find interesting. Interesting is good. What you're interesting and you can you can reasonably accomplish and you're good at. Because interesting is also a dangerous thing. I was very interested in playing sports. I thought that was the coolest thing. But I'm short, couldn't make it to anything. I kid you not, I think I've tried out for every sport and spent years kind of trying to get in. Always bottom of the pack. So I think interest is one thing, but but you also want to have whatever is the best opportunity in front of you. And a good opportunity is one, where you have the resources, uh, capabilities to build it. And then some one of those capabilities is bring, being able to bring your large number of hours every week, 50, 60, 80 hours in pursuit of that. That's easier when you enjoy it. But I think uh, when you're successful, you enjoy a lot of things also. And you enjoy nothing when you start. But if you push hard enough, most times you get good and you enjoy, the, enjoy things. So I'm a little wary of, kind of going with the passion pursuit kind of uh, thing, because that is a little dangerous advice sometimes but certainly I think find the best opportunity at that time available to you and work hard for it, work hard for it. And that I think uh, is, is uh, and then eventually it'll all end up uh, looking like a master plan that you conceived, even though it was uh, like most things in life, you just stumble into it. You will stumble into your excellent master plan if you keep trying hard enough at every opportunity.
0: We'll make our own and luck. And, and I share with you that degree of also, yes, I would love to not be able to look at people and be like, why did that happen to that person? Get to that kind of Zen point at which realization. And I know we've just, it's something that I'm sure we could spend the whole podcast talking about. We've done other episodes around these kind of ideas as well in terms of, you know, I think it is important in the business realm as well to, to discuss some of these pieces, which don't always get covered and you don't always read about these aspects, but it's, you know, it touches us all and it can, knowing, That what you share and your feelings are similar to those of others can sometimes help us get through those moments, right? And to try and put them in the box and try and deal with them. But back in terms of now, when we think of this idea of opportunities, in terms of, I'm sure that most of our listeners are aware that where we currently are, the massive strives that have been made, especially around generative AI over the last 18 months or so, obviously captured headlines. We see a lot of business interest in this space. And in terms of what you're doing there, in terms of Cornell Tech and this relationship between business, technology, society, how do you see this current era where we are? How would you frame that? And is, you know, how would you best describe that? I think
1: it's big. I think we're at the cusp of a big, big opportunity. And I'm, uh, just to ca- calibrate everyone, I'm not a super optimist or a person who gets excited too easily. I'm a jaded person who's done several startups, been in this arena for over 20 years now, so I don't get excited too easily, but I am excited here. I'm excited here. I think the, uh, the opportunity that AI is bringing us is substantial. And, and uh, a few reasons. First, I think we shouldn't think of as, oh, suddenly AI has come to light. This has been work that has been going on for 60, 70 years, had many years of things not working out. And then as it often happens with the uh, serendipitous path of science, it just one day started working. And then and, and several things came together to help it work. Again, like with careers, there's no master plan, but lots of things happened unrelated in terms of development of computing power, our data or digital exhaust we're producing. And lo, lo and behold, we, have, we are at this moment that we have created a pretty powerful technology. What is this technology? I think at the core, of course, we've had computers for a while, but computers natively can only process numbers. And so far, we were very good at automating cognitive tasks, brain tasks, that involved manipulation, classification, generation of numbers. We were very good at that. We made spreadsheets. They kind of completely help us automate uh, manipulation of numbers. So that's the history of computing. And that manipulation of numbers alone got us from 1960s or 1950s of very limited benefits from digital technology to where we were till, let's say, a couple of years back. What happened a couple of years back, what has been going on for about 10 years, but really came into public consciousness last, uh, last year or two. We've built computers that can now help us do cognitive tasks on visual and linguistic artifacts. Technically, we've been able to use our math calculators to be able to calculate pictures and, and numbers, uh, pictures and, uh, uh, and language, human language also. But to say it again, because this is an important statement, we've built some In fact, the right way to say it right now is we've seen some proofs of concepts of being able to automate cognitive work that involves linguistic and visual artifacts. Linguistic artifacts like language, written text, voice, visuals like pictures, videos. We've learned how to classify them about 10 years back. and the last couple of years, we've learned how to generate them also. Based on a description, we can generate a picture. This used to be cognitive tasks in the realm of language and, and pictures and now computers can do that. Or to put it very simply, we've built calculators for language and for pictures. We had calculators for numbers all this time. Now we've done this. Now think about the tasks around the world, It trust in a normal job, tasks that take to accomplish anything. Sure, some of them are about numbers, but many more are about seeing things many more are based about communicating, based on linguish, linguistic artifacts or visual artifacts. So overall, yes. I think the scope of work that we has that suddenly moved from the not yet automatable to the uh, stuff that we can automate now, it's a pretty large chunk of the, of the things that underlie modern society or modern work or economic productivity or economic activities that have moved into the category of where we have some proofs of concepts of being able to start doing some of these things. Now, I'm not saying they can completely do all of them, but we have proofs of concepts of doing things. That is big. The second big thing is the underlying technologies behind what were the methods that unlock this kind of new ability to automate uh, linguistic and visual work. These underlying methods are not done yet. These methods are very generic. These methods are by and large about having large amounts of data and finding patterns in that large amounts of data to be able to automate things. There's a lot more to it, but in a simple sense, that's what they are. And as we have more data and more computing power, I think these methods are not done yet. So um, maybe there are other forms of cognitive work, other forms of intelligence that still might be unraveled, or even higher abilities on within linguistic and visual artifacts. And that is a sea change as economists we would call what I just described to you uh, at two levels, this automating cognitive, uh, linguistic and visual cognitive work and the underlying technologies behind them. We would call these general purpose technologies because they it's not like, okay, if you come up with an mRNA vaccine, that is a particular purpose. It can deliver the codes to generate certain kind of proteins in your body, as far as I understand. But this technology, so it has a purpose, but it's a pretty specific purpose. But when I define something, the tools we're creating right now calculators for language and visuals their purpose is everything these are these are they're general purpose technologies they are a little bit like we learned the we built the steam engine its power its physical power we learned how to create physical power out of a machine and it's not like one industry uses physical power lots of industries lots of contexts use physical power so these are general purpose the purpose extends beyond a narrow area which is what brings us to this uh, large economic opportunity Potentially from these uh, from these technologies.
0: I love the way that you you frame that and you position that. And just to bring that home a little bit, is it fair to say, for instance, I think of you know when you pick one area that you know, may, some of our viewers may be familiar with, like when we think of like the visual side of how we do these calculations. I'm sorry, let's go with the textual side or the like linguistic side. If you think of chatbot technology, I'd say been working on this area for for instance, IBM, we've had our Watson technology for many years. In some respects, if you roll back about five years or so, the technology was very close to what I'm sure many of us are familiar with in terms of telephone automated systems, right? It was very kind of like, okay, here, if the question comes in, there's almost like a branch. Like you're saying, it's, but the way it's built is very much the same way, the kind of logic and the mathematics that you'd build to use a calculation, but it was done to be, but it would have to take language in, turn it into numbers effectively process it the way of numbers, and then it could turn it back into language and put it out. But what you're saying now, we can see this with a lot of these large language models and some of the more popular tools. And, you know, IBM, we've got this now with our Watson X product line. The idea is, is that it's typically the same thing. You've gone from chatbots that could do things like customer service, but now in terms of, like you're saying in the past, those systems would have to be trained for customer service for a shoe retailer. would have to be trained and it could take a year to train it for a retailer that was working for, say, apparel. Meanwhile, now in this new space, you're getting into areas where because of the general nature of these things, it touches the economics and the usefulness for business. Is that right? Yes.
1: I think these technologies are not just general in their their utility, but the underlying unlocks, what differentiates your old, uh, uh, even a city or a interactive voice response system that you get when, you, when the call center operators are trying to avoid getting you to a real, a real human. The difference between Siri, Alexa, and the current generation of what we're able to do. Also, there's a structural technological difference behind them. which also has to do with generalization. So if you may indulge my technical side for a bit, the big unlock, what happened two or three years back, almost four or five years back now, is this unlock of pre-training. Let me explain which is, by the way, where the P in GPT comes from. So uh, that P stands for pre-training, and that has unlocked this whole new generation of models around uh, like DALI, MidJourney, or, or ChatGPT, um, uh, various iterations of the uh, GPT models. At the core, all models, even prior to these GPT models, and are about are learning algorithms. What are learning algorithms? In a, in a regular algorithm, in an, in an expert algorithm, you tell the computer what sequence of mathematical operations to do. In a learning algorithm, you don't tell the computer what to do. You instead show it lots of examples of somebody, somebody or some way of that task already being done. You show all these examples and from these examples, the computer infers, guesses the pattern, guesses a better word, guesses the pattern, and then based on its guessed pattern, it processes new information. So it's, it's more like a kid observing someone else doing things and building their own logic on how to deal with things. Whereas the original expert algorithms are one where you explicitly tell the kid what to do in a way. So everything is in the realm of learning algorithms. And what we unlocked uh, in ImageNet uh, in 2012 or so were learning algorithms, which became very good in, let's say, classifying pictures or doing cognitive tests with with pictures. But these were mostly based on, so if you wanted an algorithm to classify birds, at Cornell, we build a bird ornithology app which is, I think, bird watching listeners of us—the large, the, the, the very many bird watching listeners—I'm sure we have. I, I, I suspect we have a small number of them. But almost every bird watcher uses Cornell's Ornithology Lab or uh, an Ornithology app. What the app does is, you give it a picture of a bird, it tells you what bird it is, and other variants of bird sounds and things like that. So, what the underlying technology there was a learning algorithm, but we had shown that learning algorithm lots of example pictures of birds and what species and characteristics they have. That is those examples we had shown the algorithm, and now it is is using the knowledge base, the patterns it has seen from those examples to tell you what bird it is. People did the same thing with other applications. I worked with uh, some farm companies which would take pictures of uh, plants and farms and fields and kind of be able to tell you, okay, what's gonna happen, um, uh, what kind of uh, interventions might be needed in the field. When we were training or showing the examples to each of these models, if your model was designed for a specific task, we showed it examples of the specific task. But five years back, people tried an alternate approach. We show these models, the specific examples, the examples of bird pictures and what species they are, a reasonable number of them, but we pair that with internet-scale generic examples. Generic examples, not of bird pictures, but of all pictures on the internet. So so you now it's like not sending the kid to be trained by, if you want to train a kid to kind of see a lot of bird pictures and recognize birds, the old approach was you make them read a bird book a lot. The new approach is you first send them on the internet to read everything. And they, almost everything. I, I mean that somewhat literally. These models will be trained on 50% of all pictures of the internet, which is a very, very large number. So first look at everything on the internet and then and, look at the specific examples a very small number of them, 5,000 or so. Now those models are what unlock uh, a whole new set of capabilities and might infer this from the way I described it. You pre-train them on internet scale data and then you fine tune them on the specific problem. This has several implications. One of the big implications was for whatever reason, nobody knows this by the way, none of the developers, no one knows, but for whatever reason, these models started outperforming the models that were trained on the specific things. They can all speculate why, why that might be effective or not, but, but there's no mathematical way of identifying what's really going on. But as a practical matter, they outperform the models that were trained on specific things. Second implication of that is they unlocked not just the ability to classify pictures, but also to generate pictures. So classification is you give me a bird spe- bird's picture and i tell you what species it is. Generation is exactly the opposite problem. You give me a bird species and I generate a picture for it. So that problem was unlocked by pre-training. So in classification, other applications we became much better. In new applications like generation of visual and linguistic artifacts was unlocked by pre-training. And the third and perhaps the most important implication of that is when you build models that are first trained on internet scale data and then on your specific problem, you think harder, the first part is common across all these different models. That has economic strategic implications. It's like everybody has to take the same road to get to wherever they want to. This has, uh, and we can unpack them, this has huge economic strategic implications on who can control the market. They become, it's a common layer of infrastructure underneath all these models. That changes the economics. It it makes it much more expensive to do. So that is the strategic implication, but also it means that if you build something, uh, the large part of the work is common infrastructure. So there's a lot of opportunity for people to build on top of it. It's a little bit like everybody was building their own um, own little way to get from point A to point B. Now everybody has to take the same train for the 80%, 90%, or even actually 98% of the way. And we can have one common train, which has economic implications, both good and bad.
0: I'm really enjoying the way that you're using examples and the, the way that you bring this to life. That's, that's great. And in terms of then, let's talk a little bit now then in terms of like, you've touched on the economics of this. What does this mean, for instance, now when it hits business at the, you know, there's the personal level, there's the piece of it in terms of how businesses think about how they get to a point of value. But then I guess even beyond that in terms of where new new business ideas and that side of it, how does this play into that space? So I think
1: of it at four levels. Number one, uh, four levels, personal, individual. Second, I think within your organization, within the, uh, within the company, society, wherever you work, a process level, the things you do, the work. Then the next level is the entire business model of the organization. And four, I would call the societal or economic kind of, uh, I would call it the economic organization of industries. So going from the top of kind of how capital and how power is split between industries to a particular uh, business's business model to a particular process's productivity, and then you individually. So we can we can unpack each each of these fours. We can start with personal productivity. Personal productivity is simply if you have the way I think about, and I think all of in all these levels is important to understand what we have right now. Too often we fall into the science fiction story myth that we've created: super intelligent machines that can do everything. We quickly jump to we've created Terminator, or for the younger listeners, uh, Westworld, or one of these uh, science fiction movies or, or shows. With, with fully human-like anthropomorphized machines that can perform at the level of humans and across a broad range of tasks. This is a myth. this This is cool. this is for the science fiction movies, and maybe we'll get there, but we're not there yet. It, it might change within a week or and 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 uh, there's always rumors of what is going on, but right now we are not there. We have not created Terminator yet. What we've instead created, the metaphor or the movie movie metaphor that I like, is not Terminator, what we've actually created are Minions. These are not hyper-intelligent people, these are not people with large, these are not algorithms with very, very general capabilities, but they do have, in certain aspects, for example, classification of pictures, for example, generation of pictures. They have human level, or in some cases, surpassing human level capabilities. Now, they're still, if you've seen the Minions movie, they tend to get lost, they're misdirected, they don't really know why they're doing anything, then they run around in circles, but they are they are minions. Now, it is easy to dismiss minions. I know Terminators are way more sexy. They sound cool. We're going to take over the world. And I'm telling you, no, we just have minions around. But I actually think we shouldn't underestimate minions because what we have actually is not minions, but whenever you can do a task in software, you can scale it pretty costlessly. So what we have here is not a minion. What we have is cheap, scalable, conscientious, dumb workers, you can call them millions, millions. we have thousands of minions who were specialized in either doing language tasks or, or picture tasks, visual tasks, but we have thousands of them. And I think the real beauty is not in their super intelligence as, as the science fiction or media would like to focus on, is their cost and scalability. Now imagine each one of us at a personal, I think that, that on insight of that we don't have Terminator, but we have thousands of minions, is the foundational insight to understand the impacts around, around personal productivity, organizational productivity, business models, and then I would say industrial organization or comparative power in the economy. So all four levels, I think, can be understood. We have to have this understanding of technology to contextualize, to understand what's going to happen at each of these levels. Let's start with the personal productivity. This one's easy. Just imagine if each one of us had hundreds of minions to help us do tasks that involve language, that involve pictures, just for us. You can all imagine how you could be much more productive. You can send that extra thank you note that you won't have. Then it's not just about automating things. It's about doing things which remain undone. Either you can finally get someone to organize your files. You can finally get someone to maybe classify, pick out clothes for you. So, so if we all had minions, and every task I described by and large is a linguistic and a visual task. So at an individual level, we can unlock, and this is not just individual our daily life, and now apply that to employees. Everybody who works in a professional um, setting knows that how many minion-like tasks do we do in a day? A fairly large fraction. At least 30, 40, 50% of time. I try to think of myself as an important person whose time is valuable, but you have no idea how much time I spend on making sure my slides look exactly right or sending out notes of, or drafting a document so that it speaks exactly to the right points. So all of those tasks, we could have co-pilots to make us a lot more productive. And that's the personal productivity layer that we we have the ability to make ourselves productive. Now take that to an organizational setting where you alone are not doing things, but you're doing things as within steps of lots of different people doing it, what we call processes. We've been talking of process digitization for years. With these minions, there are many different kinds of things we can do in processes. We can collect a lot more information around each stage of the process. We can automate some parts of the processes, which is similar to personal productivity. We can make these processes more flexible. We can modularize these processes. Our research group has developed a whole set of frameworks on how process performance can be improved with the presence of these uh, minions. Take it to the next level, business models. We can have companies that produced hyper-customized goods, which we could never For example, I have a young child, we buy children's books. How cool would it be if every child could have a customized book with them, with their family, with the race, the context of their family in that? We can do that. And there will be a whole new business model of selling books. It's not like this model where we pick a mass story and we have this mass story that everybody adopts to. We invest in that story. And then everybody we market that story. Every kid could have their own story. Every individual could have their own ad. Google unlocked the ability of not giving us a personalized ad, but at least not making all readers of the newspaper see the same ad. It unlocked the capability for, for within a portfolio of ads to max the right ad to the right person. We can go on a step further. We'll be able to create an ad for you. Good and bad implications of that uh, not notwithstanding, but it's opened these possibilities of entirely new business models in many, many sectors. And we can unpack uh, more now on any of these things. And then I think finally, because of the nature of these models that they have a common infrastructural layer, there is a risk that one or two companies own this infrastructural layer and then everybody who uses that damn road has to pay a 30% tax to reach their end goal. If you think I'm just making up stuff, this is exactly what is happening on the front end. Any product you have, you want to reach the customer, all roads go through the App Store. Anything you want to sell on the internet, all roads go through Google's ads. Gotta pay 30% tax to use these roads because there are no other roads. Now this is a little bit different. This means all roads to creating the ads, all roads to doing automating any of this cognitive linguistic work might go through a model owned by Microsoft. And there's only one game in town. It has the the economics of these kind of things have the infrastructure nature, which means they have a tendency to be natural monopolies, which means there will be one road to use to get to making your product. This time, not to reach the customers, but more on the upstream supply chain in a way. And how you produce these products. What does that mean? That means we might end up paying 30% tax to produce everything. Huge implications for economic power. Our research group has studied these at quite a bit of length. And there is ways to avoid it. It's not all doom and gloom. But the point, I think, in all of these levels, personal, process, business model, and economy-wide, is to understand that these technologies have the potential to create lots of opportunities and potentially some pitfalls also.
0: I love the model that you have as well. like You have- really going from macroeconomics and above, taking it way right down into microeconomics and down to the individual. In terms of, do you have a sense, do you think all of those... Each of those levels moves at the same speed. Do you think certain areas will grow faster, slower than others? And, you know, do, you, do you spend much time, you know, I've been around tech for a while, and in terms like shadow IT come up in terms of you know, the degree to which we as individuals use these in the workplace versus is it governed by the workplace? Do you think about those kind of questions? 100%,
1: I think it's, a, it's the question to ask. First, I think nobody, me or anyone else, can predict how things happen in the future. Every technology is different, so there will be idiosyncratic things. We live in a different world than we ever lived in before. We're all different, so I think I'm not gonna claim that I can predict. The best we can say, though, is look at the progress of previous generations of general-purpose technology. If you had some other general-purpose technology, how long did it take and how did this story play out? First, the story I said itself, personal productivity, process productivity, business models, and then economic, economy-wide power shifts. That story, I didn't just make up, that is a pattern you see with all previous general purpose technologies. We saw it with the steam engine, we've seen it with electricity, we've seen it with other technologies also. And you can almost kind of directly map map each of, in the steam engine, did unlock personal advantages, people could move faster from a place to another. It did unlock process productivity, you, in, so we can go at each level and kind of find exactly the kind of things that previous generations of technologies do. So I think the framework comes from past and the second thing we can learn from the from extrapolating what happened in in previous general purpose technologies is also look at the time scales and again uh, the world is very different but what i can say is with reasonable amount of confidence all of this doesn't happen right away there is quite some time before people will see all these benefits even with internet technology or smartphone technology it's taken a while for people to realize the economic implications of this uh, how it shifted balance of power between, uh, I don't I think when somebody invented the cell phone and they were like very cool or the smartphone, nobody imagined at that time or it wasn't immediately that we realized that one company will take 30% tax on anything we send using these phones. It took a while for these things to happen. So I think it'll take a while for these things to happen. Exactly how much I can't say, but what I can tell to our listeners is do not fall into the trap that it's all already happened or what I can pretty confidently say, there's a long, long road ahead of us. And I can also say, while I am I am trying to present a guide map for where it'll go and these four buckets, but I guarantee I'll be, I'll, we'll all be surprised by some other, other aspects or some nuance within how how it exactly plays out. So long road to go, lots of kind of uh, twists and turns still, still in there. We're recording just after some big news in the AI world around open AI. So I think a lot of these things, there's a lot of randomness in the world. So for the young people, I'll say randomness is opportunity. There's a long, long way to go. And many, many years of opportunities ahead with just this generation of general purpose technologies. So, we are, we are I think, we've seen uh, act one of a 100 act movie, probably. Maybe a fart. I can't kind of give a full, uh, precise empirical estimate, but I can say it's a lot left to go.
0: And I think that's a great point. I know- for instance, even if we think of something, well, the first iPhone came out, what was it, 2008 or something like that. And Google came out like 2002. So, you know, you could argue, well, we've been in the digital world for a long time. But if you look even in the business space, digital transformation is still such a massive area for a huge part of industry. And, you know, you think like you could, we're arguably 20 years down that road. So
1: you can think 100%, like, yeah, you know. It's, we haven't used internet technology, which is 30 years down the road. We haven't used uh, how many, is everything connected and, and, and seamless information sharing around the world? No way. And go inside a company, it's not information sharing across a, across a cubicle wall, it still works out. So I think we have a long, so exactly right. That's exactly the example I give that if you look at previous generation technologies, there's still so many low-hanging fruit still left, even with smartphones. And there's still plenty of clever things to be built using smartphones or the internet, particularly in the business realm. I think you're right to point out the consumer realm moves a little bit faster in these days. It used to not be like that with previous general-purpose technologies. But we've seen a consumerization. People are independent. These technologies are democratic. They have low entry barriers. So we do see consumer move a little ahead of business, though I'm not sure that will happen with AI. AI right now, we are seeing a little bit. Some leading companies are are quite uh, enabled by Microsoft and others. So it's not not, uh, obvious exactly this pattern will uh, replicate. But what I'm 100% willing to endorse and agreeing with, that even with previous um, generations of technology, in the business realm, we still have a long way to go. We still have a long, long way to go. Digital transformation is an aspiration for most companies, even now. It's not a finished agenda. And that was digital aspiration with old technology. I would call AI is also a facet of digital transformation, which we've just, uh, companies are talking about it at best at this point.
0: Great point for us to... Close this discussion with really saying we're at the potentially at the end of the beginning. We're nowhere near the beginning of the end. I think is maybe one way of putting it. Hundred percent does give us the opportunity, Karen. At some point in the future, we can catch up and we can talk about you know, hey, remember when we talked back in the day about this part of it, and we can talk about where we are and how much more further there is to go at that point, and what are the new opportunities. And I bet several of the
1: things we said today, I don't think they'll be wrong but they will they will play out in ways that we didn't anticipate. That's an important thing. I think as, as your listeners, listeners, and coming back to where we started with, beyond saying exploit opportunities, work hard. Given that there is so much opportunity and so much uncertainty, I'd add one more thing to people's kind of, uh, or, or your younger listeners, make the most of opportunities. Look at what space of opportunities is in front of you. Work really hard on the one that you think is best fit at that moment with your skills, with the constraints you have, financial, geographic, resource constraints you have, where can you really, really get the top percentile of, of performance in, in that, in that uh, opportunity domain? But while you do that, you should have a, as the younger you are, uh, this number will be a little bit more, but you should have a healthy amount of experimentation. Try to guarantee 10%, uh, for me, probably a little bit lower. If you're young, you have both more time. And, and more time to exploit kind of whatever you might learn. So um, I, would, I would say spend 10, 20%. So vast majority of your focus time has to be on, on what is the, um, what looks like a good opportunity to you. But a, a reasonable amount of time should also be for experimenting with something else. And experimenting doesn't mean random exploration, misdirected, I'm going to just, but some sort of consciously trying things which were not necessarily on your path, just to be sure. And I think when you're um, in your undergraduate studies or even younger, that can be 30, 40, 50% of your time. Once you kind of find your niche, it becomes smaller. So uh, look at the opportunity space. Pursue with uh, full, firm, with with extreme hard work. There is no way out of out of hard work. I know sometimes uh, hustle and hard work are, are considered somewhat negatively. I think there's no substitute for them. No, it doesn't mean everyone has to do it. But if you want to succeed, I think there's no, no substitute to them. And then on the third piece I'm adding is... Uh, a little bit of experimentation, exploration in your in your life, more when you're young and as you get older, a little bit less. To me, that seems like a path to discovering, to making the best of the opportunities that life will give you.
0: What a great piece of advice. All right, well, thank you so much. I appreciate this. This is Karen Girotra from the Cornell Tech. We'll share links in the show notes where you can go find out more about Karen's work and how to connect with him on places like LinkedIn. But I um, really appreciate, Karen, you taking the time today to share your insights. This has been the Business School Podcast, where we share the latest updates and emerging trends as we've done today. This is part of our ongoing series around business and AI. So make sure you subscribe to hear more content like this. And I thank you for listening. We'll see you on the next show.